I cackled this because it finally came up. Alright, so we're talking about church history. We've moved all the way through the first multiple centuries of the church, and we're talking about the end of the Age of Enlightenment. It's been, it's been going on for a little while. It's alright. And as we've been talking about the Age of Enlightenment, we've come to the point where we're talking about some, some wake-up calls that are going to lead to an Age of Revolutions, where revolutions hit on a multitude of levels across, specifically Europe, but really across the world. But last week I promised you we were going to talk about the War of Jenkins' Ear. I left with that, and everybody was just like, oh, I totally want to hear about the War of Jenkins' Ear. Why? Because A, it sounds fun, and B, nobody knew what I was talking about, right? Anybody ever hear of the War of Jenkins' Ear before? Okay, did anybody actually go look this up? Good, then this will be fun. <laughs> 1739, England fights the War of Jenkins' Ear. Now, we talked about this before. War, Treaty of Utrecht ended what war in 1713 that nobody else remembered, but that we're trying to remember as a class? Queen Anne's War, right? Big war, important war in the United States. Changed a lot of things. Nobody knows anything about it. Darn stinking shame. But the British have been given trading rights in the Caribbean as a result of this. It's also the war where we got a trained militia in our colonies. It's also a war where Britain built stone forts for us in our colonies. It's also a war where we started getting upset with Britain and having to fight their wars for us. So it's kind of, it was kind of an important war to precipitate the Revolutionary War. But just because Britain got trading rights in the Caribbean, it doesn't mean that Spain let them trade in the Caribbean. Because it's, it's one thing on paper to say it's okay for you to do this. It's another thing, half a world away when Spain's got a much bigger navy, we don't have to let you do this. And so... Immediately, Spain started harassing shipping. They started taking people's cargoes. They started uh, taking slaves off of the ships and selling them themselves in the New World because they could. Because Britain has like two ships. You know, they got nothing as a navy. And so Spain can push them around as much as they feel like pushing them around. So Britain says, since we don't have a big navy, we're going to start licensing privateers, i.e., you're a pirate, but you're a pirate on our side. We're paying you to be a pirate against them. Because you've got a ship, and we don't have to pay you that much. It's a lot easier than us doing it. So, if you remember, we talked about Edward Teach, Blackbeard, being a privateer. Britain's actually paying him to go fight the Spanish and things for them. And British smugglers are operating all over the place in the Atlantic, trying to hide their cargoes from the, from the Spanish. One of these smugglers uh, was a ship called the Rebecca, captained by a guy named Richard Jenkins. And in 1731, the Spanish tortured his crew, tortured him, took all of his cargo, and then cut off his ear as part of their torture. They, they ripped his ear off, and a Spanish captain tossed it back to Jenkins and said, take that to your king and tell him that if he were here, I'd do the same thing to him. I mean, seriously, this is just bullying. That's what it is. It's, it's saying, we've got a bigger navy than you. We can do whatever we want. So Jenkins did exactly that. He took it home started telling everybody the story, and Britain did nothing. Because there's a reason why Spain thought that they could bully Britain. And they kicked sand into Britain's face, and Britain went, oh. I mean, the classic, remember the, the classic ad, you know, the girl and guy at the beach, the guy kicks sand in the guy's face, and he's like, hey, she's like, you're a wimp. And then he goes home, and he beefs up, and then he goes and apparently just punches the guy, is, is, if I remember the, the, the comic strip well. The War of Jenkins' Ear, okay? 
Because that's what happened. Guy comes, kicks sand in England's face. England goes, yeah, I can't do anything about it. But I'm going to get a Charles Atlas kit and build myself a navy. Because that's what you do when you get sand kicked in your face. Stop it. Computer, stop it. So, by the time 1738 rolls around, Britain's been building up her navy, bulking up, looking at itself in the mirror, going, about ready. Jenkins is asked to testify before the Prime Minister. Remember we talked about Robert Walpole uh, being the first Prime Minister. Jenkins pulls out the ear that he has kept for seven years. Pulls out the ear, tells his story, and Walpole, who's like, I have been trying to avoid a war forever. He says, all right, we'll, um, we'll talk to Spain. We'll take this under advisement. We'll tell them they really shouldn't chop off people's ears anymore. I don't want to go to war with Spain, but I will. We're beefy enough now we can actually go flex at Spain. And then Jenkins said, and he, the captain said, tell your king I do the same thing to him. And that's when the king heard about it. And King George II goes, actually, Georg, because he doesn't speak English, right? It's German. So, in very intense German, like your song later. Very intense German, he says, I demand we declare war. Because they said they wanted to chop off my ear. And Walpole tried to explain, you probably don't want to kill thousands of people and get thousands of your own people killed just because you can't take a slam, you know? And George couldn't take a slam. So he's like, no, no, declare war. What's the German word for metaphor? Right. So, it's some glutinous thing that takes the entire page. Witten Sodden, Witten Badaden, Witten Badaden. Dare, Witten Sodden, Witten So, the big thing, though, that pushed over the edge was that Spain threatened to tell Britain they couldn't trade in slaves anymore. One of the things in the Treaty of Utrecht was that Britain was assured that they could still do their slave trade. Spain said, nope, nope, nope. If you guys are starting to rattle your saber, you guys are starting to flex at us, you guys are starting to talk about that maybe we shouldn't chop off a guy's ear and threaten to do that to your king. Like, you guys have the right to tell us that. Fine. Then we're not going to let you, we're not going to let you trade slaves anymore, which is like the biggest economic boon at this time. So for the next decade, Britain is at war with Spain over Jenkins' ear. And they call it the War of Jenkins' Ear. At least part of it, they call it. It's a war fought mainly in the Caribbean, much like Queen Anne's War had been fought mainly in North America. So Britain it says, fine, we're, we're fighting Spain, but nobody in Europe actually sees much of it. I mean, people are shooting at each other and poking each other with pointy things half a world away, but not in Europe. And so most Europeans say, I don't feel the war very much. I mean, think about many of the wars that we've had relatively recently as a nation where we send people other places and hear about it on the nightly news, but it's not that big a thing. It's kind of cold and clean for most people sitting in Europe, which is why it can go on for a decade and be really ugly over here in the United States, the colonies. 1740, year after the War of Jenkins' ear started, Friedrich II becomes king of Prussia, and y'all go, oh, I don't care. It's important, it's important. Prussia's over here, and it's Polish. 
When we think Prussia, we tend to think Germans because they tended to speak German there, but it's a Polish dukedom, duchy over there. And it's not that big a deal. It's, it, it, it's not a major power, but it's been, it's the Charles Atlas thing. It's been beefing up its army in particular. The Prussian army is getting pretty solid at this time. But in and of itself, it's not that big a deal right now. Young Friedrich did not want to be part of the army, in large part because his dad wanted him to be part of the army, and he didn't like his dad. So he was going to run off with his friend, possibly lover, and I, it's always a little iffy in history because they're forever wanting to, to say, well, this guy was probably gay because he said he liked a friend of his. Friedrich probably was. I mean, some of the stuff that he was saying about, about Hans, uh, some of the stuff he said about women in general, uh, at one point he talked about how fortune wasn't on his side because fortune's a woman and I just don't swing that way. You know, that kind of stuff where you go, I, I think Friedrich probably did. But they were going to run off to England together. Leave the army, desert, go AWOL, run off to England together. So how do you figure that's probably going to sit with his dad, Friedrich Wilhelm, who was affectionately known by people as the Soldatenkönig, the soldier king. He's all about the military. He's been beefing up the Prussian military. And his seemingly probably gay son is going to run off with his lover and leave the military and go run to England. And not going to go over well with Friedrich Wilhelm. Right? So Friedrich Wilhelm has Kate, his, his lover, Hans, executed as a deserter. Wants to have Friedrich executed. But he's like, I kind of need an heir. Um, so instead... He has Friedrich exiled. He has him kicked out of court. None of this is going over well with Friedrich the second, right? But Friedrich is thrown in prison, exiled from court, until his dad dies. That's okay because he never got along with his dad much anyway. They they did not get along. Friedrich did everything that he did against his dad. So his dad loved the military. So Friedrich studied poetry and literature and Greek philosophy and things in large part, to torque off his dad. His father loved German. said, German is a beautiful language. This is, this is the language of our people. We don't speak Polish, we speak German. Made a big to-do about it. Which is why Friedrich despised German. Wrote whole essays on how horrible German is as a language. He's, he says, I speak French primarily. That's what I speak. I, I refuse to speak German. German is horrible. I hate the sound of it. I hate the vocabulary. I hate the fact that we stick a bunch of words together to make another word. I hate the fact that we leave our verbs to the end. You could die of old age waiting for a verb. He no, he actually wrote that. You know, so it's like he hated German. Again, didn't appreciate his dad. His dad didn't appreciate that. In fact, Basically, to torque off his dad, he became friends with, remember when we talked about Voltaire, who made a career out of going, ha, make fun of monarchies and make fun of Christianity. Ha, I'm just funny and amazingly witty. Take me to a party. Voltaire. Friedrich makes good friends with Voltaire, again, in large part, because it really annoyed his dad. He also started adopting Voltaire's deism. The idea that, remember what deism is? The idea that there's a god and he kind of started the game of mousetrap going, but he doesn't play with it. He doesn't do anything with it. He never interacts with your life. You can't have a relationship with God. If there is a god, there probably is. He's incredibly distant and he doesn't care about you at all. Do you see where a guy who has this kind of relationship with his dad might find that kind of god appealing? 
I got no connection with him. I don't like him. He just sits up there telling me what to do, but then doesn't do anything about it. So, in large part, because his dad is this staunch Calvinist. His dad's been although um, his dad is a, was kind of a tweet Calvinist. His dad didn't like the idea of predestination, so he made sure that when his son was taught theology, they skipped the whole predestination part of Calvinism. So it's like everything else. But don't even mention that Calvin said anything about predestination. Which is okay, because that's what God had planned on in advance. So! No, 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 no. Anyway. So, Friedrich Wilhelm dies in 1740. Friedrich II comes to power and begins reforming Prussia. I'm going to fix it. Much like we talked the other week about Pyotr reforming Russia. So, Pyotr the Peter the Great reforms Russia. He sees himself as this platonic ideal of a philosopher king. He even wrote a book in French, because that's the cool language, about why Machiavelli had been wrong, and it's not about the, the best king isn't the strongest king, the best king is the most enlightened one, the one who devotes himself to arts and to reason and not to things like religion or armies and things. No, no, you, you want to just, just love thinking. That's what you want to do. That's like a, hey, come take over a Prussia flag. Except, well, get back to that. He also was a big fan of the Bourbons in French, in France. And so he liked this idea of the, uh, the, the absolute monarch, the monarch who is in total control of every part of civilian life. So even though he writes a book going, no, 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 it's all about enlightenment. It's all about just being kind and smart. And everything. You're like, but you're in control of everything. Oh, yeah. That's the only way you can make sure it runs right. <laughs> ooh, ooh, ooh! Yeah, I will, I will say that's what Plato technically said too. The, the philosopher king should be in charge of everything. So, so technically, <laughs> technically that would be that would take it all the way back to Plato. But we can discuss uh, Plato and, and uh, right wing left wing politics after class. But he starts building up education. He starts building up the arts. He starts building up. Uh, Schools, things like that. How do you fund that? Taxes. Taxes? Is there any other way to fund things? War. War. Those are the only. You gotta go steal the money from somewhere else. No, he did both of those. He raised taxes, but he also invaded Silesia and, and, and took a lot of territory for Prussia. So Prussia goes from this little bitty duchy that, that nobody really cares about to being kind of a major power in the span of Friedrich's reign, doesn't it? I mean, all of a sudden, it's, it's almost as big as Austria-Hungary, almost as big as, uh, well, bigger than England. But it's, all of a sudden, he takes that army that his dad had built up and says, why don't we take everybody else's stuff to pay for the stuff I want to do here in Prussia? Now, there are other territories here that he took that didn't want to get tucked, right? And there's all sorts of treaties, like the Treaty of Utrecht over there that said, you know, for the last <clears throat> 30 years, everything's been pretty much doing okay. So, his own people refer to him as Friedrich der Grosse, Frederick the Great, kind of echoing Peter the Great. Uh, you've done all these reforms and we've grown and trains run on time and this is great, you know, I love this. It's great to be a Prussian at this time. But the other neighboring kingdoms weren't as happy with him. You don't get a lot of people in, in say, Austria calling him Frederick the Great. You know, they're, they're not it's more like Frederick the Twerp. You know, they don't, they don't like him very much there. But he didn't care about things like that. I don't care about 
rules. I don't care about treaties. I don't care that my dad agreed that we wouldn't take this. I don't care that we had been getting money from Poland. Let's now take Poland's stuff. You know, Because we're bigger than Poland in terms of our military now. I don't care about anything else. And since Maria Theresa suddenly was in charge of Austria, she was thrust into being the empress of the Holy Roman Empire, though she can't actually do that because it's got to be an emperor first. Everything's a little bit in turmoil in Austria, and he's like, then who cares about Austria? I'll just take their stuff. I can do whatever I want. The world is my oyster. So Prussia, France, and Spain, because he loves this French stuff, and the French are working with Spain. So Prussia, France, and Spain go to all-out war against Austria, England, and Russia, because England will pretty much stand against Spain and France no matter what's going on. So you get a world war because Friedrich goes, yeah, I want stuff. Friedrich is kind of like a petulant child, and yet he makes a lot of changes in Prussia that are worth, you know, historical note. But you get this big whole all-out war, but if you remember, half those countries already were kind of either at war or rattling their sabers against one another anyway in an unrelated war. So Britain is already at war with Spain over Jenkins' ear over here in the colonies, right? And now we have a world war where everybody's being drawn in it, into it together. So that's going to spill over into the colonies. This war of Austrian succession with Mother Teresa, uh, Mother Teresa. Maria Theresa, different, totally different. Maria Theresa being in charge here, all of a sudden, the, the, all these countries that are fighting in Europe decide that the better place for them to fight is over here, since half of them are fighting over here anyway. So there's a ton of fighting going on in the colonies. Originally over Jenkins' ear, and now over the fact that Friedrich just kind of wants to do whatever he feels like doing. Over here, it became known as King George's War. Again, you ever hear about that one? Good, a couple of you have heard about King George's War. Good, 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 because we're getting a little bit closer to that. Because nobody in America cared. This is a derisive statement. They're like, this isn't my war, this is King George's War. Why do I care whether Friedrich Wilhelm or his son Friedrich, why do I care which Friedrich likes France and which one doesn't? Why do I care that they took territory in Poland? I don't even know where Poland is. Somebody asked me the other night where Dubai is. Do you know where Dubai is? Not exactly. Not exactly. Some people, yeah, mostly. The you oil know, is. Where the oil is. They find a concentration of very rich people, that's Dubai. So um, there's a lot of time, and, and, and it, was, it was even worse over there at, at, at this time in history where people were like, I don't care about Poland. I don't care about Austria. I don't even know where Prussia is. Why do I, why do I need to be fighting and dying over here in America because they don't like each other over there in Europe. And they were beginning to resent being thrust into European politics. Like, I'm doing my own thing. This is irrelevant to what we're doing over here in America. Again, do you see how this kind of feeds into the Revolutionary War mindset? 8% of the population of Massachusetts died fighting King George's War. Like, one in every 13 citizens of Massachusetts died fighting a foreign war on this soil. Actually, it did create an uh, and it, it wasn't so much a, a marching the streets with placards as much as it is uh, everybody going, this stinks. We're not doing this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. The bloodiest battle was when militiamen spent six weeks taking Cape Breton Island from the, Brit from the French, losing nearly a thousand New Englanders over six weeks to take it. 
just because King George said we're at war, so you got to take stuff. You can see why they're like, I don't like this. Luckily, 1746, hypochondria, Bourbon's French-speaking Spanish king, Felipe V, finally passed away. And his son, Fernando, was extremely weak and didn't want to go to war anymore. So like, I got enough other things to deal with, and so let's stop this war. So all of Europe got together with the Treaty of French word. I, sorry, I just don't speak French. I don't know how to pronounce French necessarily. Um, and they decided we're going to put all the wars that everybody's got right now. Treaty of Aachen. That's what the, that's what the Austrians call it. So let's just do that one. Um, but they get together and they said all the wars that we currently have right now, we're going to stop all those, and we're going to start all fresh and anew. One big treaty where we make everything okay, mostly. Everybody's like, all right, all right. To get Madras back from the French, Britain decides to give them Cape Breton Island. What? Well, because they need Madras. It's, it's, in, it's in India, and France had taken it from them, and it was more important to them, so they're like, tell you what, we'll, we'll do a little hostage exchange. You can, why would Britain care? They didn't lose anybody. Exactly. But now you see why I'm bringing this up. Because to England, they sit there and they go, we didn't lose anybody. Who cares? It's just something on a map. I've never been to India. I've never been to America. I don't know either of these. But the India location is more important to us. But yes, the Americans are like, no stinking way. Seriously? We lost a thousand guys over this, and you clearly just see this as a dot on a map. You don't care that we just died fighting your war on your behalf and you turned it back over? King George's War showed the Americas very clearly England doesn't care about you. So the next time that somebody comes along and says, well, the Revolutionary War started because there was a tax on tea. <laughs> that was kind of the rose. That's it. That's the last straw. We're tired of this. But... For decades, the Americans have been seeing this and going, you clearly don't care how many of us die, you clearly just see us as an expedience. <clears throat> yeah? This is King George's War where George Washington got his chops. Maybe. Oh, yeah. That's where he learned. And, and there's going to be the, the French and Indian Wars of the, of the 1750s. That's kind of a continuation of this because they keep wanting to fight all of their battles over here in the Americas. Yes, but this is the first one where... Uh, where uh, George Washington, actually a couple of the of the of the commanders in the in the Revolutionary War, are are young, uh, spirited guys going into war for their first time. Anyway, 1741, next year, we talked about this last week. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Not going to go into this right now, but Jonathan Edwards preaches the the Great Awakening sermon. This is the one that everybody who's ever heard of any sermon there has heard about. This one about why people need to, even within the church, need to be called to repentance. You need to make a decision to follow God. <coughs> Part of this stems into what became known as the old side, new side controversy within the Presbyterian church. The Great Awakening, not everybody saw it as so great, because the Presbyterian church was of two minds on the subject of what constitutes a revival. Why should you do this? What, what do you think the two, the two perceptions were? What do you think people had a problem with about the great... 
You have preachers like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield going around preaching to thousands, thousands of people converting to, to Christianity, uh, thousands of Christians getting their life right before the Lord. Why would anybody have any problem with that? Yeah, but in what way? Not that you might hear anything about that today, the idea of people coming in from other cultures that might interfere with local politics. Like somebody sent me a YouTube video this week about why you really, really shouldn't allow refugees into the United States. Yeah, I mean, we still deal with that kind of stuff. What else, though? What about the in-house people? Why would anybody have a problem with you having people in congregations, in Christian churches, rededicating their hearts to the Lord? Yeah! Somebody comes into your church that preaches to your people and their lives are changed? <coughs> what did you do wrong? What, what does that suggest about you as a minister? What does that suggest about you as a congregation? What have you been doing wrong? All this. The new side, guys, the, the new preachers, the new life preachers, encourage all these itinerant missionaries to come along and go to different churches and call everybody to a repentant conversion, to authentic faith, you need to really actually live this out. And the old side people, the established churches, said, no, that's nuts. It's chaotic. You're bringing in all sorts of other perceptions that we're not familiar with. And it confuses people about what faith is all about. You're preaching conversion. Making a decision to follow Christ. Being inwardly changed as a result of that decision. That's what you guys are preaching? And the new preachers go, yeah! And the old guys go, what are you, nuts? No! We're preaching obedience within the faith that you received at infant baptism. You are already a Christian. You've been a Christian since somebody moistened you as a baby. There's no decision to make. How, how dare you tell people that they're not Christians? I myself baptized this infant. And you're telling me this person is not a Christian? Who are you to decide that sort of thing? Putting the decision on a believer undermines the sovereignty of God because you're saying that the believer makes the decision, not God. And there's your theological problem. It undermines the church's authority because you're telling us we've been doing a bad job. We haven't been saving these people, but you had to come here <coughs> to save them. And it undermines infant baptism because what was that all about if it wasn't to make sure that they're Christians? And the itinerant preachers are like, ah. How do I explain this uh, without saying uh, you're wrong on all those parts? Exactly. That there's this, there's been a whole bunch of different movements <clears throat> of people saying, even down to the Pietists, who are not necessarily Anabaptists, saying, you know, y'all to live this out. You know, y'all to make a decision to follow Christ. You need to be changed on the inside. And all the Anabaptists saying, yeah, you do realize that. None of this matters if it's all outward in. It has to be inward out. It needs to be your decision. Yeah. How many people at this time um, were moistened uh, at birth regularly? Like, I, have... I mean, I mean, what I'm saying is, like, the preachers are coming in and, and preaching conversion, and the the old preacher preachers are saying, um, no, no, we're already Christians. We just need to live this out. So, like, what about like, are there any people like who are, who 
Well, I mean, that's what we've been talking about for a couple. Yeah, that's what we've been talking about for a couple of centuries. Is um, so I have no idea what percentages at this stage because I mean you've got old school Presbyterians, Lutherans, Catholics, um, <coughs> the new burgeoning group of Baptists, uh, the new group of Wesleyan Methodists, who are all saying no infant baptism. Then you have a new group of Wesleyan Baptists or Wesleyan uh, Methodists. You have new Anabaptist groups. You have Waldensians. You've got a whole bunch of different people running around going. Actually, I don't know how it works like that. So it's, <clears throat> I don't know how to answer your question exactly, because that's been one of the things that has been a problem now for a couple of centuries, is people saying... What I guess saying, I mean is, what about, like, Joe comes to here and gets converted, but his family, like, he hasn't grown up as a Christian or whatever, like, and he's like, yeah, I'm actually converted instead of... That's good. Okay, I see what you're saying. That's going to be very... Very few and far between. That's Almost everybody goes to church. Okay, that's what I wanted. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that the Greece Presbyterian Church has mm -hmm. normally not had a Baptist donkey. Right. They have put one in now. That's right. Yeah, in their new facility, they have a baptistry. And they're saying for those people that feel that they want that, even though we lean the other way. This is just recently. I heard the yep. message. So, so they're trying to kind of straddle both sides of this particular controversy. Well, when, I was, <laughs> when I got baptized at the Methodist Church, we had to get special permission from the higher up because um, we wanted to be dunked. There was a group of us who wanted to be dunked, and they sprinkled. Mm -hmm. um, and so we had to get maybe special permission, but they allowed us to. There you go. I, I, okay. All right. Then we can move on. I don't want this just to be about baptism. Christi yeah. uh, Christianity today, which you get, mm -hmm. it's all on the difference between differences and what's heresy. The difference yep. between uh, nuances, and uh, it's a real good write-up. It was a very good write-up, and I'm glad you said that because it's a wonderful lead into this. Is that yes? Do you sit there and you say, "Huh? I see where you're going with this. I see what you're trying. Here's what we've been trying to do, and I see what you're trying to do." Oh, we complement one another. Instead of saying it that way, they're like. They both pointed at each other and went, heretic, you know. And so they were even preaching, and this is part of the problem, the new the new site people were even preaching that pastors needed to be converted. You, you need to make sure that you actually have a living faith as a pastor. And the old site people were livid about that. Wait, I'm going to come into your church, preach a sermon, and then leave? <laughs> yeah. Like, preach a sermon that your pastor needs to be converted? Yeah. And then leave? Okay. Not necessarily that your pastor hasn't, but the double check and make sure your pastor has at some point. Okay, and Gilbert Tennant even preached a sermon called The Dangers of an Unconverted Ministry. It's like there are tons of pastors out there that they've gone through all the motions, they've grown up in church, and maybe even gone to Yale to learn how to be a pastor, but they've never had a personal relationship with Christ. What does that do to a congregation that your pastor, even if he's really smooth at things, doesn't have a relationship with the God he preaches? And the old side people are like, what are you, nuts? They don't have to be converted, they just have to do the right theology. So all this is intolerable to the old side preachers and leaders. They're like, no, no, no. You guys don't even have formal education. A lot of these new side preachers didn't even have formal degrees, which we talked about last week. Remember how all these universities popped up to teach preachers and to teach missionaries to, to have proper education, proper theology? And they said, you've got no pulpit. You're itinerant. You're running around. Forget the fact that most of these churches were started by people that were circuit writing. No, you've got no pulpits. And all the old site leaders said, no, if God, if God had given you a calling, he would have given you a pulpit. Since you don't have a pulpit, you have no right to be preaching. 
which makes a certain amount of sense to them if you think about it. If God wanted you preaching, he would make sure that you could preach. I'm not saying I agree with them, but I see the rationale. I look at it and say, well, but these missionaries and these various itinerant preachers are saying, but my pulpit is North America. You know, my whole job is to reach out to all these different people. So, the leadership decided no one's going to be allowed to preach anymore without a valid college degree and without an official church calling. If you do not have your own pulpit, you can't. You cannot preach in any pulpit that you have not specifically been called by that congregation to, officially as their pastor. And you cannot be called unless you have a specific college degree. So, the New Side Presbyterians, led by preachers like Gilbert Tennant, Samuel Davies, different people like that, officially broke away from the Old Side Presbyterians, forming their own synod. They're like, all right, if, if you're going to thwart the will of God, if you're going to try to undermine our missionary effort, then we got to do it ourselves. Again, it goes back to what, what Cliff was talking about. Could this have been where, where the old side preacher said, we have created this consistency in the church, we want to have correct theology, we've been trained in a lot of different things, we, we want to uphold the traditions of our congregations, and the new side guys come in and say, yes, and we want to inject them with some motivation to grow as individuals, we want to kind of shake things up a little bit and say, you need to take this seriously, and then we'll go somewhere else and try to help them and you can figure out how to work that into the structure. Could this have been something where they complemented each other well? Oh, yeah. No, that didn't happen. So they broke apart, taking a page from Whitfield. They encouraged these itinerant preachers. They're like, knock yourself out. You go preach all over the place, ride your horse. You don't need a, a, a specific pulpit call. Taking a page from Edwards, they're like, teach the terrors of the law. Tell people what God expects from them, and tell them what will happen if you don't do it. Make them emotively feel why, on a daily basis, they need to stop and say, what we do is not very much compared to what God is calling us to do. Interestingly, and this you see this happen over and over and over again in these kind of situations, because they emphasize the importance of personal decision-making, personal action, and because they broke away from the old side, the new side begins drifting Arminian. Which some of you might go, yay, some of you might go, no. But the point is, is they at least started very Calvinist. But but once the Calvinist said, you're not Calvinist enough for us in terms of the way we perceive Calvinism. Therefore, because we think you are slightly in error, we're going to break apart from you, you're, you're going to break apart from us, then they go even farther in that direction. And so when you run into a when you run into a church that's saying, uh, I don't know if, if we're going to be tolerant of gay marriage or not. If we're going to say that that's a good thing or not. We're, we're in discussion of that, and, and, and the two sides chafe enough to the point where they break apart. Then the side that, that maybe stays says, okay, we're, we're, we're going to shut down all that discussion, and we're absolutely, absolutely intolerant of gay marriage and homosexuals in general. And the other side says, we're going to sponsor gay rights parades. You go, all right, so what you've done is, become caricatures of the two sides. Instead of working together to say, well, wait, maybe we can take a strongly biblical stance but have a very loving pastoral heart in how we do that. Maybe we can actually learn a little bit from both sides. You go, nope, why don't we go this way and become extremists? That's what happened over here. So the old side becomes extremist in their own views. They, they no longer have this injection of, maybe think about this differently. Maybe have a, a warmth in your heart. Maybe 
have a relationship with God. That, that all kind of goes away for the time being. Changes the way Presbyterianism looks in the United States. Same year, Russia discovered... Yeah? Is that the name they go by then? New Presbyterian, Old New side and old side is what they were calling themselves. There's the, and there's the new light... Uh, they, they've been calling themselves new light preachers. Now it's old side, new side of this controversy. So Russia, because the new people are like, ah, but new is a good word. And the old people were like, oh, old is a good word. Both of them thought that that was a very apt description of their sign. Russia discovers the Aleutians, which had been sitting there the whole time. Yeah. And nobody cared about the Aleutians. Seriously, nobody, nobody, Russia, Americans, everybody, they're all like, well, who cares? They're cold. They're up there. Nobody. What are we going to do with them? Great, you found them. Big fat hair deal. Poor Danish captain Vitus Bering dies in the process of, of finding this stuff. He dies for nothing because nobody cares. Until they say, whoa, wait, there's a lot of fur there. Wait, there's... You know, there's some resources there in the Aleutians that... Uh, okay, we care. This gives us a foothold in the Americas. There's a lot of fur-bearing creatures there. There's a lot of whale... <coughs> no, let's... Uh, no, we're going to totally hold on to the Aleutians. And so... Russia being the backwards European power. They're like, yes, we're Europe. No, you're, you're Asian. No, we're European. No, I'm pretty sure you're Asian. No, totally European. No, we're in the Americas. You do realize we're all over here on the, on the, on the right side, you know, over, over here on the, on the coast. Yeah, we're on, the, we're on the left side. But all of Europe is over here. Right, we're Europe. We're over here in the Aleutians. <laughs> Nobody's over on the West Coast yet. I mean, there's maybe like a couple of Spanish missions down in, in, in the west side of, of Mexico, very, very southern little bit of, of California. Nobody's doing anything on the West Coast. Except for, except for up there in Alaska where the Russians go, yeah, we're totally going to be European over here. Tell you what, we're going to name the Bering Sea after Bering because he was so important to us. We didn't think about that for a while, but now we think, yeah, it's the Bering Strait. It's the Bering Sea. It's the Bering everything. Bering was important. First Russian Orthodox missionaries, really actually just 10 monks who wanted to build a monastery, but landed at Kodiak Island in 17, uh, 1793, and a grand total of one of them survived uh, the first two years. A guy named Herman, now considered the patron saint of Alaska to the Orthodox Church. Saint, saint Herman of Alaska. So for the first time, you start getting these pictures of patron saints in Alaska, you know, with a very American kind of setting. Anyway. Same year, Benedict the Fourteenth. I know it's kind of a big year. Benedict the Fourteenth issued what he called the Immensa Pastorum, called for end of the of enslavement for native Brazilians by Europeans. Because if you'll remember, right now, slaves are coming. It's illegal to enslave a European. Slaves are coming from Africa and from the Americas. The ones in Africa are being sold by Africans. Africans are selling them to the Portuguese on the coasts. In the Americas, slavers are going into the jungles, capturing people out of their villages, and dragging them off into slavery. Very different perspective. We tend to think of Africa that way, like, like the, the Europeans are running around in the, the jungle chasing people down. You go, no, 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 African tribes are selling African tribes into slavery. But in, in, in America, Europeans, specifically the Portuguese, are running there, attacking and taking Brazilians. Now, the context of this, though, wasn't that Benedict cared so much about the Brazilians. And that's, 
And so a lot of times the way it's being presented, they're like, oh, what a caring guy. More so it's because he hated the Jesuits. And the Jesuits have been setting up missions in Brazil to protect the Brazilian people. Um, so the, the mostly Spanish Jesuits have been providing shelter for the natives from the mostly Portuguese traders. And the bull called for a closure of all these missions. Because, by golly, these people need to be returned to their villages. They're being, they're being, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, they're being misused by the, by the Jesuits. They're, they're, they're being taken from their, their, their context. Send them back to their villages. What happens if you just send them back to their villages? They can spread the gospel. They can spread the gospel, and that's great. But that's where they keep getting enslaved from, right? So, it is important to note that this coincided with Rome's agreement to turn a blind eye toward Portugal's slave trade. Um, Benedict was extremely popular in Portugal, and he had a close relationship. In fact, the, the, uh, <laughs> the princess that was born in Portugal during his, his tenure was named after Benedict. They took his name and made it feminine because they, they, they love Benedict and he loved Portugal. Got a lot of kickbacks from Portugal. So, he says, fine, Portugal, you can do your slave trade. Jesuits, you can't protect the, the, the villagers anymore. So sending the villagers back to their villages doomed them to be captured by the Portuguese slave traders. I say this because the irony is the papal bull decrying slavery actually encouraged slavery. It was designed to make it sound like you're supporting a lack of slave trade when what you're really supporting is an increase in slave trade. Preacher George Orwell. Yes, yes, it's very double speaking. It was. This is the historical context for the movie The Mission. Even though, if you'll remember, the movie itself is based on the mission work of a Jesuit that lived a century earlier. But the, but the actual historical context of, of that movie was this, where the Pope is in bed with Portugal and the Jesuits are going, really, really, this is a bad idea. Bear in mind, this is the same Pope who the next year issued the, uh, the bull that told Jesuits stop reaching China well. Uh, it's the same Pope that sat there and said, you're, you're dressed in orange? And they say, yeah, yeah, because people respond to it. They're, they're used to holy men dressing in orange, so we dress in orange. I mean, we don't pretend to be Buddhist monks, but they already associate that with Buddhist monks. So, yeah, we dress in orange. It's working great. Pope's like, yep, no, no more. Stop using Chinese words to describe God to Chinese. Use the Latin words and make them have to learn them, as God intended. Stop doing this. And the Jesuits kept saying, but... But all you're doing is hurting our ministry. It's not helping at all. We're not doing anything. This is the bull that he, that he issues where he says, to be a missionary in China, to be a missionary in the Far East, not only do you have to agree with all this stuff, but you can never bring any of this up again. You have to swear before God that you will never, ever, ever question Rome again. Then you can be a missionary in China. The Jesuits oh, really hate this pope. So, Because there's always these Dominicans that just keep rushing back and tell them what's going on. Seriously, because the, the biggest problem the biggest problem in the church in China was the rest of the church in China. The biggest problem, the Jesuits were kicking it, but the Dominicans hated them. And so they were fighting each other constantly. And now we're back to kind of what Cliff was saying earlier. Cliff was saying, if the Christians could just work with each other, mere even the same 
You're even the same, essentially the same denomination. You're both a set of Catholic priests and monks. You're both a set of Presbyterians. Can't you work together? And the answer is no. No, we're constantly going to fight. But, yeah. What about the fact that, like, like, we're talking about the whole uh, Europe's in Europe, America's so far away, they can't really enforce, you know, stuff like that. How come it doesn't work the same way? Rome and China. It depends on what you're. It depends on what you're trying to enforce. I mean, um, there's a reason why the Jesuits have been able to get away with this for decades because Rome keeps saying stop it, and they keep saying yeah, this works well. Well, we're going to keep doing this. Rome is finally getting to the point where they're like, okay, you can't go to China unless you unless you swear before God, and then you're going to make yourself a liar or whatever. And in the Americas, they can still enforce some things, but it's hard, like. Like going back to Jenkins' ear, it's hard to enforce some of these things on the high seas when you are a merchant ship and you get pulled over by a Spanish warship. Like, um, we have a photocopy of the treaty that says that we can do this, and the Spaniards go, nah, I don't care. It's like, that's the thing that's hard to, to enforce. Speaking of enslavement, 1743, John Newton is pressed into the Royal Navy. Anybody, do you guys know what I mean by pressed? Yeah. Sort of like draft. Yeah, they capture you. They catch you. Impressment is the legal right for the Royal Navy to say, congratulations, you're now part of the Royal Navy. We need new guys. It's kind of like drafting, but it's drafting with a billy club. You know, it's, you can come in and say, that's it. You are, you are an able-bodied person. You get to be part of the Royal Navy. Lucky, lucky you. So press gangs would roam the countryside and and take people by force to join the Royal Navy. Um, actually, there are a couple of classic books where this is a theme of um, my brother got pressed into the British Navy, and oh, look, he escaped and somehow made it back. And, you know, they did this in this country, too. Yes, they did, which is yet another reason why we were starting to get frustrated, because not only were we being told that we needed to be part of foreign wars, we were being pressed into foreign wars. So, um, and then... And then later on, especially when you get to that French and Indian War in the 50s, England's like, oh, by the way, we're going to house all of, our, all of our troops and give them food and anything that they want, whenever they want it. Again, America's starting to get frustrated with this. So, now, supposedly they weren't supposed to take anybody who didn't want to go. Oh, good, I was hoping you'd show up. Yeah. I really wanted to be in the well, what they, they do is the they'd have a shilling and they'd say, hey, do you want this shilling? It's 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 classic kind of bait and switchy thing. They're hey, you want this shilling? If you take the shilling, they say, so you took payment to become part of the British Navy. Now we have the legal right to beat you over the head because if you don't come with us, you are going AWOL since you have took the shilling and you are now part of the British Navy. There's at least an old wives' tale, and um, that that's why a lot of different taverns started um, having clear bottoms to their to their mugs, is because the press gangs would drop a shilling into the mug. And then at the end they go, hey, look, you've got a shilling. You accepted it. You know, and, and so you have this clear bottom and you go, somebody dropped a shilling in my mug. You know, um, but even though that, I, I, I don't know that that's true, but the fact that that's what people perceive, and you understand how big a deal this, this is. And they're never supposed to take landsmen. They're only supposed to take able-bodied seamen. You're, you're clearly, by the way you're dressed, you're a, you're a sailor. We'll take you. But when you're an aggressive sailor, whose whole job is to violently take people and force them to be part of the British Navy and you have a quota, 
Who cares? You know, and and and, and, and it's not like there's a there's a great uh, record system out there somewhere. So if, if you say, well, my my son Floyd got pressed in the British Navy and he was a farmer. He's not a seaman. Who are you going to talk to about that? Well, what what ship did they take him to? I don't know. It's just four guys with a club, and then they left with him. Well, do you know where they took him? To sea, I guess. Could you bring him back? Well, we don't even know how to contact whatever ship it was, so I'm sure he'll be back in ten years. Yeah, nobody likes the British press gangs. Anyway, so John Newton pressed into the Royal Navy. From this point, we're going. He's going to be played by Albert Finney. Yeah. Uh, so, because doesn't it look like it? Check it out. But anyway, so uh, Albert Finney, uh, John Newton, has been impressed into the Royal Navy, forced to serve aboard the HMS Harwich, man of war, and he hates it there. Tries to desert as as soon as he gets there, which isn't a good idea. You should only desert if you can actually get away. If you can't get away, not a good plan. Stripped into the waist, flogged until his flesh was in ribbons, embittered him, something fierce. Hardening after that, he requested to be transferred to a slave ship called the Pegasus. He's like, I would rather be a slaver than for the British Navy than serve on a man of war. I hate it here. Quickly became known as foul-mouthed, hateful, hated by everybody. He's like, I don't want to be here. Everything about this is, is horrific to me. I hate. That's all I do. All the time. Even the slavers complained that he mistreated the slaves. Think about that for a sec. <laughs> that even the slavers who crammed the slaves into the holds, who crammed them into, uh, into shelves that are only about like two to three feet high, and say, you have to be here for months on end. Even the slavers say, oh, this guy was mean. I mean, he just he molested slaves. He picked on them. He was cruel to them. He just hated the world. Thirty to 40,000 slaves shipped over the Atlantic annually by England, by Spain, by Portugal. Nasty, horrible conditions. And they say, yeah, we don't like John Newton. He's that messed up. So roundly despised that when he got sick in 1745 in Africa, they left him there. They're like, fine. You know what? We don't like you anyway. There's a slave, there's a group of slaves over here. You're their slave now. He gave him, a, gave him as a slave to the slaves. Routinely beaten, routinely tortured, especially by the, by the head slave. So he began taking out his, his frustrations on everybody else. He began beating and raping his fellow slaves, began throwing himself into witchcraft. He's just like, I just hate. I'm in a dark place, and I'm reveling in it. If I'm stuck here, this is what I'm going to do. becomes this absolutely hateful, despicable individual. 1747, he's finally rescued by an ivory trading ship called the Greyhound. Joins her crew. The captain of the Greyhound was specifically asked by John Newton's father, see if you can find him. He's on the west coast of Africa. How hard can that be? It's not as hard as it sounds, because there's only a, a few number of, of places where English ships are allowed on the west coast of Africa. And so they were, after, after some searching, they were able to find him. And they hated him. The ivory traders are like, this guy's horrible. He, he blasphemes constantly. He's foul-mouthed. He's a drunk. He hates everybody all the time. And 
it's not like this is a floating Sunday school class. But they're like, most of us are Christians to one degree or another. The idea that this guy is constantly talking about God derisively, constantly being an absolute foul mouth, they're like, we don't like him. We're merchant, you know, we're merchant seamen, and we think he's a bit rough for us. That's saying a lot, yeah. Captain wrote that he would have thrown him overboard or left him at the next port, except that his dad specifically asked him to get him home. It's like, if his dad hadn't specifically asked, I'm so sick of this guy. He doesn't do his work. He doesn't do what he's supposed to. Oh, I hate this guy. 1748, the ship is almost overcome by a storm at sea, and Newton is down the hole trying to plug a hole, and he gets trapped down the hole as it's filling up with water. And in almost dies. In desperation, he cries out to God. And immediately, the cargo shifts and, and slides over and plugs the hole in the side of the ship. I mean, it's one of these things he's less like, I don't even know if there's a God to help me! Shoom, done. That's life-changing, is what that is. That's when you sit there and you go, even after all this, even after everything that I've gone through, God's still actually going to hear my prayers. God's actually going to be there for me. Kind of a huge thing. Becomes a Christian, and he's like, I'm, I'm not going to drink anymore. I'm not going to swear anymore. I'm going to get my attitude straight. Still continues on slaving ships, because, again, most people at this time, most Christians at this time, didn't see slavery as a bad thing. But he's, he's like, no, I'm, I'm getting my attitude right. Totally fundamentally changing the person that I am. By the time he's in the 1750s, he was even a captain of a slaving ship, but he finally left the sea to become a priest in the Church of England. He's like, I, I can't do this anymore. I, I, can't, I can't be a slaver. I can't. If I really am going to get my heart right before the Lord, I need to get my heart right before the Lord. I need to help other people get their hearts right before the Lord. Ordained in 1764, dedicates himself not only just to studying the Bible, but also, he's like, I'm specifically going to seek out all those people that seem like lost causes. Because that's what I was. And yet God never let me be a lost cause. So he reaches out to the poor, he starts new ministries, he goes to, he specifically has an urban parish where he's just like, I want the hardest, worst part of the city. Those are the people who need my help the most. That's the kind of person that God is trying desperately to reach out to. But then he openly confessed, he's like, everything I did for decades was horrific. I got lost in darkness. That's not what I want. I spent a decade outside, I spent five years completely outside of God's will, and a decade lost in doing all the stuff that I should not have done. No, no Christian could, should ever treat another fellow human being like a slave. That's, it's wrong. I know because that's the way I was treated, and I know because that's the way I've treated people. I was the worst sinner, and I don't ever want to do that again. 1779, he publishes a book of hymns, including a hymn called Faith's Review and Expectation. You guys familiar with that? Yep, you'll know it from the first words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, and now I'm found, was blind, and now I see. Think about his background and what that stanza means to him. I was utterly blind. I was lost in darkness. And yet God reached out to me. 
It was grace that taught my heart to fear. Grace, my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear at the hour I first believed. When God first reached out and saved me, I went, that's unmerited favor. He's going to shield, he'll be my shield, he'll be my portion. Through all sorts of dangers and toils and snares I've come, and it's grace that's brought me here. And when I've been in heaven 10,000 years, bright shine. Pardon me? Okay. There is another verse that he wrote. Not this one. So, other people wrote. We've no less days to sing God's praise. Don't forget that one. But, this, this is the one in particular that I'm focused on now. When you realize what he's been through in this, you realize what this, what this, what this, him, what this message means to him at that time. Anyway, 1787, there's a, a hedonistic guy, not a horrible person, but a very much a, a do-what-makes-me-feel-good kind of person, termed devout Christian politician named William Wilberforce, who found himself in a moral quandary. I've just accepted Christ. I want to get my heart right. I've spent my whole life just kind of being flippant, playing whisk, drinking, having fun with my friends, singing. Not a horrible person, but just, I, I feel like I should give my life completely to the Lord, and yet I also feel called to be a politician. But all the politicians, other than my other than my buddy, who's now the new prime minister, um, all of them kind of stink. Do I want to be a politician? And what do I do? So he turned to an elderly and penitent, John Newton, saying, "What do I, what do I do? Because I want to give my heart to the Lord. I want to to be a, a minister of some kind for God." And yet, I feel like I should be a, a politician. How does that work? And Newton says, I'm begging you, please stay in politics. I'm begging you. You go, I don't know, should I be a politician or should I give my heart to the Lord? Be a politician sold out to the Lord. Please, please be a strong Christian in that context and end slavery once and for all. The only way we will end this thing that I have done for years is to get somebody in office who will do this. And you've got a you've got a prime minister at that time who's a classy guy, and we've got one member of parliament who says that this is important. Is that enough? Thanks to Newton's encouragement, Wilberforce did exactly that. That's a story for another week. But to stop and think about how all these things flow together, the idea of the war of Jenkins ear being ultimately, ultimately, not just about cutting off Richard Jenkins' ear, not just about annoying King George II, but ultimately the thing that pushes over the edge is if we're going to lose our slave trade, we'll go to war with Spain. You have Pope Benedict issuing a proclamation that, that slavery is bad, and yet doing it so that he can support his Portuguese friend's slaving habits. You have John Newton being a slaver, lost in slavery himself, and then coming full circle to the end of his life, confessing that this was horrific. I did a horrible thing. When I think back at that time, I just, I, I'm sick to death about it. Please stay in politics and make this stop. You can see a flow where you go, all this leads to this. You can see where uh, churches turn on one another saying, because you don't do things the way I'd like you to do it, we're going to schism. We're going to undermine one another's habits. We're going to fight one another on everything. When 
when Christians work together, and when we talk about Wilberforce, we'll see people from all sorts of different traditions coming together on this one issue. Even though they disagree on a bunch of different things, they'll say, but this we agree on, if we can work together on this. The fundamental importance of realizing what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a child of the living God, and what it means to reach out to other children of the living God. Why do you do that? Is it to feather your political nest, or to use your political nest to honor God? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for the, for the people that have gone before us who learned in their lives what it means to follow you. Lord, I thank you for their willingness to be changed by you, to be, to be converted, to be changed from the inside out into the people that you've been sculpting them into the whole time. Lord, I thank you for the grace that you showed Newton. I thank you for the grace that you showed Wilberforce. I thank you for the grace that you show all of us. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to stand for truth, but to do so with that grace, and to love one another well as an act of worship to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.